probably already planning what you're going to do for Christmas, six months out, a year out, big trips, things like that, graduations. Uh, life runs at a different pace when you're not in mortal danger. And when you get to a place where you could be blown up or killed at any moment, you start operating minute to minute. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. The Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. You ready to go? Welcome to another educational edition of the Stigma Free Vet Zone, brought to you in part today by a grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation. We are here overlooking the Milwaukee River in downtown West Bend, and today we welcome our guest, Mac McDonald. Uh, Matt served with 173rd Infantry, uh, Airborne Infantry, deployed to Afghanistan in 2012 and 2013. Today, Matt is Executive Director of Next 18, which he will be sharing with us today. So let's go across the table and welcome our guest for today, Matt McDonald. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, as, uh, we were talking for about the last hour and enjoying our conversation, getting ready for the podcast. You've got some fascinating information and experience to share with us. So let's get right to it and, and uh, tell us a little bit about Matt uh, before the military, your family, brothers, sisters, sports, whatever, who you are and where you came from. So I am originally from Detroit. I lived there for a couple of years. Then my parents moved to New Jersey, lived there for a couple of years as well. Uh, settled in Germantown, Wisconsin for about the last 25 years, went to grade school, high school there, um, spent two years down in Kentucky at Murray State University. I went down there to play golf, uh, went for criminal justice as well, ended up not really fitting in in a country college area after being in uh, cities for most of my life. So came back to Milwaukee over the next maybe four or five years, finished an associate's degree. At that time, I was about 25, 24, 25 years old. Um, and then, then from there, I entered the military. Uh, before that, I never really got outside of uh, Milwaukee, never really got outside of the U.S. Maybe I think I went to Cancun one time, uh, Vegas a couple times, traveled a little bit around America, but not not too much outside of it. So so let me interrupt you quick. So the Cancun and, and Las Vegas will all stay there for now, right? We won't talk yes, about yes. that. But going back, to, before we get to Ed, so what year are we about? What year were you born? Your brothers, sisters, uh, how was your family uh, leading up to this expectation of going into the military? 
I come from a pretty middle class family, uh, mother and stepfather, um, no no siblings, uh, one dog. Um, <laughs> played golf, played baseball, played a bunch of sports in high school. Pretty well off. I, I had a I had a pretty good uh, upbringing. I never had any need for anything that wasn't given to me. Uh, it was a pretty good upbringing. So pretty stable. Pretty, pretty stable. stable. Very stable. So, so you get to the point where, where you have gone to college. You're a little bit older for someone entering the military in general, 25 years old, I think you said. Correct. What was the inspiration, inclination, uh, reason for thinking about the military? For about four years before joining the military, I worked in the service industry downtown. Uh, a lot of bars and restaurants. I served, bartended, kind of did the whole experience. And the whole time, it felt empty. There was, it was I loved every minute of it. I, I experienced a lot of stuff that a lot of people don't get to that typically just go to a bar. Um, there were a lot of benefits to it. But at the same time, it felt very, there was a detachment there. It was a connection that you didn't have with the people. Um, and as I got older, part of me wanted to travel the world. I wanted to see the world, but I also wanted to do something that was bigger than me. And I know a lot of us say that we, we live to do something that's bigger and better than what we are. And, and there's a calling I don't really think I had the calling. I just wanted to get outside of Milwaukee. And the more I started looking into the military, the more what it what it was about, what I could do, what I could see, really started speaking to me. And when I was about 18, 19 years old in college, I got to a point where I just didn't understand it. it um, proper eating techniques or taking care of yourself there. I just didn't understand that. And I gained about 80 pounds. And I think when I was 19, I weighed about 250 pounds. And when I came back to Milwaukee after leaving Kentucky, most of my friends were in really good shape. They worked at the bars. They, they had a very good lifestyle. And I was the friend that, uh, I felt out of place and I just started running one day and six months later, I ran in a half marathon. About a year and a half later, I ran the Chicago Marathon. And in that period, I think I got back down to my normal 170, 180 pounds. And it was around that time that I realized I, can, I think I can do anything I set my mind to. if I just have it in me to do what I say I'm going to do. And that kind of tied into the military a couple of years later. And I just started thinking to myself, well, if I can run a marathon a year and a half after never even running a mile, I can do some of this stuff. I can go to basic training. Not just after not running a mile, not being able to run a correct, mile. Correct, correct. <laughs> so the military really started coming into focus for me. And I started meeting with a couple of the recruiters. Originally, I wanted to go in uh, to the Air Force. I had an aunt and uncle on the extended side of my family that now I believe are both lieutenant colonels in uh, the Air Force Reserves down in uh, Louisiana. And at the time, I went out to Las Vegas, and they were stationed out at Nellis, and I met them and talked to them about it. Um, my immediate family has no experience with the military other than my grandpa um, being way back in the military a long time ago. Um so I 
I said, this is what I want to do. I, I wanted to go in. At the time, they had a program, uh, 18 X-ray program. If you had an associate's degree, if you were a certain age over maybe like 22 or 23, uh, you could go through this program. And basically what it was is you would go to uh, infantry training down at Fort Benning. Then you would go to airborne training at Fort Benning as well. If you made it through those two programs, then you were sent down to uh, Fort Bragg in North Carolina, and you went through what was called SOPC, Special Ops Preparation Course. That was at Camp McCall, which is where most of the special operations for the Army, that's, that's their base. It's maybe 45 minutes outside of Fort Bragg. So you go down to this camp, and there's probably 250. 50 of us from our basic training. So we've all now gone through basic. We've gone through airborne. We've been together for four and a half, five months. The camaraderie is there. You're with all these guys that are all hard chargers. We all want to do the same thing. We, we highly, all think, highly motivated. Right. We all think we're going to make it through this program. And we go through this prep course, and it is three weeks of basically eating as much as you can, working out nonstop, learning land navigation, learning the team-building exercises, all these things that in about four weeks you're going to go through when you get to SFAS, which is the selection uh, for the Green Beret program. It's the entrance to the Q course, which can be anywhere from two to three years long, where you go incrementally through different programs to become a Green Beret. All of us thought we were going to make it through that program. Realistically, I want to say maybe 15 to 20% made it through that of the original 300 of us that went through basic training. Uh, I got about four days away that first time from uh, finishing. I, we were doing land navigation. It was one of the last iterations. I was running through the woods to get to a point in the middle of the night, stepped in a spider hole, about a 12-inch hole in the middle of a field, Uh, my body, my rucksack, my weapon went forward. My leg stayed in the hole. Uh, that was the first time in six months that I felt mortal again. I laid that in that hole. I laid in that hole and started crying. I started crying because I had spent six months of my life getting in the best shape of my life, the best mental place that I could be, and a hole in the ground ruined it for me. I had to pop my flare, my IR beacon. The cadre all came out, picked me up, put me on the vehicle. I remember sitting back in the med tent, and guys that I had been going through the course were coming back from hitting their points. And I, all I could do was say a couple words to the few that were there, uh, and that was it. I was pulled back to uh, Fort Bragg, back to the place that we were attached, about... Four or five days later, I got my orders, and I was sent to Germany. Let, let, me, let me stop you right there. Sure. We're speaking with Matt McDonald, who uh, joined uh, the military, actually on his way to Special Forces uh, with a special group. And, and you say a couple of things that are very, very interesting. One of them is that you felt mortal again. So this whole sense of joining the military, you're, you're, you left Matt McDonald a long ways back and joined this whole group of an, a different way of thinking and that, that uh, thinking that you're immortal. This is typical of infantry soldiers, that you can do anything and you will do anything. And fear is not a four-letter word that has entered your vocabulary yet and, and will be chased out whenever it does. 
So Correct. you are part of a team. You are now part of something much greater where your expectations are much higher than they would be for probably anything else you've, ch- you've been challenged or tried to uh, volunteer for in your life, I would think. Completely agree with that. And I remember just when we first got to Fort Bragg, we were now in an area where we were surrounded by full-time service members. Everyone was on active duty. When you were at uh, Benning and you're going through basic training and uh, airborne training, you're you're pretty much isolated from regular Army. And we get to Bragg, and they're taking us out in the morning, and we're doing PT, and we're running around. And I remember very vividly the cadre pointing at the regular units and saying, look at these people. They're out of shape. They're out of weight. They're never going to compete with you guys. Very early, the indoctrination started. That started day zero at basic training, but it continued and you, you buy into it very quickly because you're, you're doing something that you're told a small percentage of a percentage will ever attempt. So, so you're not only getting the indoctrination, you're getting the separation, right? You're going off on this new special forces uh, line, which that's an extraordinary mental, psychological, spiritual adventure to go on. Uh, Very, very disciplined, very, um, very demanding and, and very competitive, I would guess, with the other guys that you want to be one of these guys and you're going to show them you're as good or better as they are and none of them are better than you. But I, I, want, to, I want to ask you one other question real quick before we go on, then we'll go on to where, where you were assigned to. You had mentioned that before you entered the military, Matt, you had pretty much stayed around Milwaukee, didn't know much of the outside world. Were you aware, though, through the news of what was going on in the world? Were you aware of the world, the war in Afghanistan and Iraq? Did, had you seen other soldiers go off to war, come home from war? You were a bartender. Were they ever in your bar? What was your awareness of what was going on in the world with the military at the time? The awareness was there. And going, going way back when I was a kid, we... We lived in New Jersey, but where we lived in northern New Jersey, I remember my parents always talking about how you could look off the the balcony of where they lived and you could see the Twin Towers. And I remember going to New York City when I was younger, and we I don't remember it well enough because of the young age that I was, but I know we were there. We have photos of the, the, the towers and being in that area. And when it happened, I think I was 17 or 18 years old. I was in um, junior in high school. I remember them wheeling in the big TV, and we saw it. It didn't really register at that age what was going on. The older I got and the more involved we were in Afghanistan, it was always in the back of my mind, but it was not at the forefront. And I remember after I started getting to the point where I decided I did want to go into the military, I made a really conscious decision to watch a couple of movies just to kind of, I don't know if it was to maybe mute what I was about to go into, but, or if it was the glorification of what I was going to, I don't know what it was, but uh, Black Hawk Down was one that I watched. And for the last like three months before I went, I was on a delayed deployment to go to basic. I was at my parents' house. Um, my mom probably had to see me watch Black Hawk Down two, three, four hundred times. Uh, at one point, I had her sit down with me and I said, "You know, there's a scene in the movie where uh, 
Sugart, the, the two Green Berets are sitting in the chopper above the downed Blackhawk. And they are telling leadership over their headsets, We're, we got to go down, right? We, we see the entire... Uh, the entire city closing in on these guys. We don't know if they're alive. We don't know if they're dead. We're going to assume they're alive and we need to go down and save them. Back and forth with leadership. We can't let you do this. There's two of you. There's an entire city closing in on this. And they finally get let down. And as we all know, they, they were able to save one of the pilots. Um, They both died. Uh, they were both killed by gunfire, small arms fire, uh, in that engagement. And posthumously, they were both awarded medals of honor. For me, it wasn't so much, yeah, uh, I expect to do that one day. It was after being in the environment that I had been in with the service industry, seeing people do something bigger than themselves. It, it, it spoke to me in a way that nothing ever in my life had before. So I... I just rewatched that movie over and over again to drill it into my head. This is why you're doing it. You may never be in this situation, and I'm not trying to reach for accolades that I don't deserve, but it just it spoke to me. And it's the morale. It, right. Yeah. yeah. It's taking care of those that are around you that are there to protect you as well. So, so a higher motivation than bartending. I'm right. glad you made that right. clear. That, that's an excellent description. I'm glad we went back to that. And as long as we've gone back to that, let me just ask you quickly about your parents when you went into the military. How, how was your mom about this? Moms are different about their sons going into the military and I was their daughters. I only child in a middle-class <laughs> family in a suburb of Milwaukee. My parents had no understanding of they, – they couldn't rationalize why I was doing this. And it was the same thing with my friends. Because of the delayed deployment, I I did my swearing in, I did my oath, everything. But then six months went by before I actually reported to MAPS and went to basic training. And the entire time, friends of mine would, you know, it was this running thing. You're not going to go. You're not going to do this. Yeah, you signed up, but you can still get out at any time in six months. For me, it was fuel. It was someone telling me, you can't, you're not yeah. going to do this. I'm going to do it. The more they said it, the more you knew you would do it. Right. Oh, how, how about your mom? Was she treating you especially in the loving pats on the head and the kiss on the forehead? And, uh, I don't think I've ever apologized to my mom, <laughs> but I'm apologizing to you now because I know what I put you through for the, the handful of months. I, w- I shut off. I was mentally preparing for what I was about to do, and I don't, I know. They may never understand it because they were never there. I think being able to shut off as much as I did post-military definitely helped me in basic. But when I got to Afghanistan, being able to turn off and just focus on the nine months that were ahead, it was it was vitally important. Let's get you ready to go back to where you take off for Afghanistan, but just closing with your parents for now. Were they there at the airport to see you off and uh, all the, the John Philip Sousa marching songs and, uh, you know, the patriotism and the honor as best they could? Yeah. They yeah. they okay. drove me to MAPS about 15 minutes from our house at like 2 in the morning. I'm pretty – I can't remember the exacts, but I, I basically got on a bus and – took us to the airport, and I think that was that. Then I was in Atlanta and then bus down to Benning. It was a very quick goodbye. Yeah. 
Probably better sometimes that way than standing around right. with the tears and everything. Right. Okay, so sorry to interrupt you on that, sure. but let's go back up to now you're, you're, you're taking your mission. You're finished with your training. You've, you've stepped in the hole. You're not going any further with special forces at the moment. Continue on from there, Matt. So now I get sent to Germany, and at first they told me I was going to Italy, but like 24 hours later the, the orders changed, and it was, hey, you're going to go to Germany. You're, going, you're still going to be in the 173rd, but you're now with 191 Cav. So you're getting sent to a cavalry unit, which to me seemed funny. It turned out our uh, C Troop 191 was the only infantry unit in this company. Um, There was three or four other troops, and they were all cav, and they were all cav, and we were infantry. So we were kind of the the bastard children of the unit. but we had some leadership, and our leadership had all come. Most of them had just come from uh, some form of RASP. So they were; these were the guys that were going to ranger ranger assessment and selection, and they were the cadre. So we had uh, our first sergeant, uh, I believe, two of our platoon sergeants. These guys were all from RASP, so we had some good leadership. We had guys that were motivators, right, in a cav unit, and they made sure we knew every day. You're better than the rest of this company. Uh, we're the infantry. We're going to do everything above the standard. You know how it goes. Oh, I do. And you're buying into it. You want to be that. Buying yeah. into it 100%. I was <laughs> drinking the Kool-Aid every day. Um, so I get to the unit, and at the time, the immediacy of when I got to Germany and Schweinfurt, uh, most of my unit was in the field for like a three-day exercise or a three-week exercise. So I came back to a skeleton crew. I kind of got left alone right away. I was a little bit older. Uh, I was a PFC at the time, so I was a, I wasn't a private private. But um, I got set up, got set up in my barracks, and it's kind of crazy because the barracks we were in were like World War II. These were remnants from World War II, so we were living in like I'm pretty sure barracks that were used by the Germans back then. And it, there was a lot of history there. It, it was cool to be in Germany and to be single and have Europe at my fingertips. Within five or six months, I was in Afghanistan. So there was not much on the front end to prepare you to prepare me and to, to enjoy, yeah. right. And to enjoy Germany. Um, I remember right before I went to Afghanistan, a couple of us went to Barcelona. We took a four-day. It was one of those four days you get right before you leave where time's a little uh, lax. And enjoyed Barcelona, enjoyed Spain, and thought that might be it. Now it's, it's time to go to Afghanistan. So when we got to Afghanistan, you go through about a five or six day period where we flew into Manas, uh, Manas Air Force Base, which I think is in Kurdistan. And you do a, you go through like rollovers. If you're going to be in MRAPs or all the vehicles, you go through certain types of training, uh, just, just processing. It's the forward progression to get to Afghanistan. I think we called it in-country training. Right, right. But, but let, let's stop just for a second sure. because we had talked about this before we started recording. And that whole thing in your mind, you, you've gone through basic uh, uh, infantry training. You've gone through a paratroop school, jump school. Uh, you've gone through all the special operations that where you're going. You've gone over to Germany, everything else. But now you're actually going to a war zone. We had talked about, is there a time when you're in that airplane where you're crossing into Afghani airspace or something, or, or when the door opens on the tarmac for the first time, 
that all of a sudden the world changes? And I don't want to be feeding your, this into your ideas, but do, do you remember that where this is no longer, we're not going to Barcelona? Right. <laughs> so when you fly into Afghanistan, and I'm not sure if it's different if you fly into northern or southern, but for us, we flew into Bagram. Bagram's the, the, the mega fob. It's where most of the logistics and civilians and all of the contractors come into in that area. It's located in and around Kabul, which is the capital. And when you fly into Kabul, it's um, I liken it to explain it to people that have never been to a war zone. Kabul is like Chicago. It's about the size of Chicago. It's massive. Maybe houses 50,000, 60,000 people, contractors. They're, they're literally flying 747s into this place. It's that big. Then... About two days later, once they get flights for you, you hop on a couple of Chinooks or whatever they move you in, and you fly down to uh, Fob Shank. Fob Shank would be Milwaukee, a little bit smaller, sister, brother of, of Chicago, uh, less people there, less protection, still safe, safer than where we ended up. You go there and you're there for 48 hours. Again, it's a, hey, we got to get billeting ready for you, your unit, your unit that is already out there, uh, the Advon party, the initial group. Guys are moving out of your base, and it's it's a big cluster of bodies moving so that people can switch. And when I got off that plane in or the, the helicopter in uh, Shank, we had a couple minutes apart because we were uh, separated, and I remember walking out onto the tarmac, and I was out on the flight line, and I knew the general direction. We were in a big bowl, uh, a big um, geographical bowl. Shank is not in the best position militarily. It's I don't know who put us there, but I don't know did. why they do that, but they do it. And <laughs> to one to the the west was this valley, and it was the Tangy Valley, and a little bit more geometry. So from Kabul down to, I believe, Kandahar, there are two main roads that run. And these roads typically will be shut off for any type of uh, interdiction. Maybe maybe coalition forces shut down the one road so that they're stopping arms coming in and out or whatever. Well, at some point halfway down, maybe 60 miles south of Kabul, and please don't, yell at me if I'm wrong on the exact numbers, but there is a road that connects the two main roads running north-south. This road goes east-west, and it cuts through a valley, and that's the Tangy Valley. Historically, it is pretty heavily contested because if they're cutting off road number one and your only other option is road number two, you got to take the road to get to two, and that is running right through this valley in Baraki Barak and a couple of other provinces in that area. So let, let me ask you a quick, Matt, about that. And this valley, is this a jungle, treed, arid, sand? It, it ranges from... Is it a good hiding from, place? It ranges from farmland in, you know, in, in a typical valley, right? Closer to the water is more lush and green, and that's usually where most of the, uh, the, the villages and towns were. And the farther you go up, I think it ranges... I don't know what the exact elevation is, but it gets to a point where you're in very arid desert, and then it's mountains. Not mountains like... The Alps. Right, but mountains, desert mountains. Um, So I'm looking out on this tarmac, and I know that that's the general direction we're going to go. You can see the road going into it. We're not 
quite at sunset. It, it's late in the evening, and I walk out a little bit. I, I'm, I'm standing on the tarmac. I've got my weapon with me, my, my helmet, my, uh, my Kevlar, everything. And I look out into the, the horizon, and I think, you know, I've had a really good life. I'm, I'm 25, 26 years old. I've had everything I've wanted. I, I, I've done a lot. I, I got to experience a lot of great things. I've had really good friends. My family's been there for me. I didn't have a bad upbringing. And at that moment, I thought to myself, if you die here, you die here. You chose to do this. This is what you wanted to do. You're here now. Time to do it. And I and, came and to you grips. remember this as a clear thought. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. This is one of the most clear thoughts of my life. That's significant thinking. Right. Yeah. And I, you have to come to grips with it because to explain to a civilian, you go from a point where we plan things. You're probably already planning what you're going to do for Christmas six months out a year out, big trips, things like that, graduations. Uh, life runs at a different pace when you're not in mortal danger. And when you get to a place where you could be blown up or killed at any moment, you start operating minute to minute. And for me, I think that was where I, I detached from civilian Matt. The calendar. And it was, yeah, it was, let's just get to tomorrow. And I think that v- very much helped me get through the next nine months. Well, interesting. A fascinating way of putting it and very honest way of putting it. So you're really shifting from the 24-hour-a-day calendar to the survival mode. Correct. Without really even knowing it, but you're doing it. Right. In hindsight, I saw – in hindsight, I can see exactly what was happening, but in the moment, it was just in the moment. Literally – the most visceral I've ever been. Wow, interesting. But, but maybe that's why they call the survival mode natural. It, right. It's happening naturally. We're, there's no psychiatrist in our head saying, okay, you better start preparing for this. It's happening to you naturally because of what you're observing and your expectations. And uh, I, I'm sure we all go through it. Oh, I, yeah, in some way. To a T, everyone on that in my platoon and everyone that I went there with, I'm sure we all go through that. Let, let me ask you this, if it's not too invasive, and tell me if it is. Uh, do, do you remember your first uh, tracer round that you saw, first incoming round that you heard a whistle over your hiss over your first explosion and you knew it wasn't a backfire of a car? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> a handful of uh, patrols, maybe five or six, seven patrols into our, our being sent out, um, we we go out into this village. We're maybe six or seven kilometers away from where uh, our our outpost is, and we're in a village. There's there's a bridge that crosses uh, part of the village, and most of my platoon is on the other side of the road, and I'm on the side of the road with uh, one of my my other uh, teammates, Martin, and a couple of other guys. And I'm at the front because at the time I was carrying a saw. Uh, it's a belt-fed machine gun, uh, five, five, six rounds. So one of the bigger calibers in our. Is that a two-man, two-man machine? Nope. Gun? No, this, this is a one-man, um, but it it's belt-fed, so it'll put rounds down. Right suppression. All of a sudden, it, it, it's quiet. Nothing's really going on. And all of a sudden, we hear these like cracks. Yeah, it sounds like whips are going around us. Oh, Not yeah. a lot, maybe five, six, seven of them. The snap of the whip. The snap of the whip. And I remember like stopping, and I'm thinking, what? <laughs> and my platoon sergeant, we look over to him. He's he's 
literally flapping his arms. And we look, and he's like, you're getting shot at. Yeah, get down. Get down. <laughs> and that's when you can you, you feel the the um, the bullets hitting the stucco of the, uh, the clots behind you, and you're like, oh, I'm getting shot at. Someone's trying to kill us. Yes. And I just uh, I, I unloaded I, I in a general direction because training, right, you have training, but in that immediacy – uh, okay, I'm just going to shoot this way. And you shoot, and you don't really know what's going on. At least I didn't. Um, I'm sure some people have it better. You know, they, they lock into what's going on. But it took a couple of seconds. We we engaged, and within probably 30 seconds, the entire platoon was shooting in a direction. We had uh, the ANA, the Afghan Army, with us. I think we had maybe 10 or 12 of them. Uh, all I remember is these guys running up in front of us and just lobbing RPG rounds, like uh, rocket-propelled grenades, over us. And it was complete chaos. Like, what is going on? But at the same time, it kind of slowed down. It was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever done. Like, this, this is awesome. This is what I joined up for. So, yeah, I remember it. And then I remember when we got back... Uh, we, the E3s, the E4s, the the guys that had never been shot at, we thought it was the coolest thing in the world, right? We're going to get our CIBs. We're, we're, we're G.I. Joes now. We're the coolest guys. And our leadership's just like, you guys are idiots. This is nothing. This is absolutely nothing. This is the most minor firefight that you'll probably encounter here. So it was it was a mix of you know both emotions, like, cool. I, but, I got but, but in all honesty, Matt, you hadn't yet to see – the results of what can happen with a firefight, which, right. which changes that whole perspective right. of, hey, this is cool. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, but that's legitimate. You're, you know, your first time. I think more importantly, you were able to uh, return fire, which is something that doesn't really happen right. that quickly in the first. So it, I, I wouldn't be critical of yourself because I have a feeling that this whole firefight thing takes on a different, uh, different life of its own later, different emotion for you later. Right. Yeah. So glad, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> So that was that. That that day ended. Um, then we went back. We did our typical clean the weapons, get chow, make sure that you're ready for the next day. At some point, you went to sleep after we did, you know, whatever we thought was a celebratory thing at the time, uh, basically just goofing off. Um, and then we were basically on a rotation where it was seven days on, seven days off, uh, three days in a guard tower, and you just rotated that for nine months. Uh about six months into my deployment, I uh, we were we were doing a night mission, moving moving through a village, and um, I got injured on the the, the movement uh, again. My right knee. I got at the time I had then been switched over to a, a Mark Forty Eight, which is a larger belt fed. So now I had one of the larger weapons in the platoon. This one now fires seven six two rounds, which are larger caliber, cause more damage. And my rucksack with the 900 rounds that I carried, between everything I was carrying was probably close to 100 pounds. You know how it goes. Just for the ammunition. Well, or just ammunition, the, whole rucksack. the food, yeah, everything, yeah. everything yeah, that yeah. you need. And I, I don't really remember what happened, but I know I was moving while things were going on and uh, there was a – small wall like a two foot high wall, wall right outside of a house and when i was 
reacting, I went over the wall. My right leg caught the wall, and I went over it with the ruck and everything. Same same knee from uh, selection, right? <laughs> I just remember waking up in my my bunk. They, I'm pretty sure they said they gave me like a shot of Toradol, uh, evac'd me out of there, and that was pretty much the end of my uh, dismounted deployment. Um, because I was a little bit older, because I think maybe they identified that I was a little bit smarter than the average E4 at the time I had been promoted. Uh, they put me in charge of the Intel reports. So I swapped out with the kid who was doing that and now he took over my position and now I was basically, um, logistics or Intel. I was in a three man, four man unit. Uh, two officers, uh, an E6 that I got really close with, and myself. And then in and out of there would be the guy who dealt with our our, our canine unit. He was in there. Uh, we had one other gentleman who took care of the comms and so things like that. So was this going like recon or and attached to recon, those kind of This people? was just in – no, this was like the the intel for the, the cop, for the three platoons inside of our base. So I never left the base, but I was still there. And – I spent the last three, three and a half months of my deployment filing these reports. But at some point in the deployment, we became the most heavily used unit of Puma and Raven parts. And these are Pumas and Ravens at the time in 11 were the very, I think they were getting into the beginning of uh, drones. Right, but these were troop level drones that you could literally take apart and put in a backpack, and while you were out there, send them out. But we just sent them from our base, and we had a habit of breaking them. Uh, they are not easy to take off and or land, so routinely they would send like a E six or an E six uh, or an E seven to a helicopter. Would pick them up when the mail would come in or whatever. They would go to uh, Shank stay at Shank for a day or two and get a flight to Bagram because that's where, again, Bagram is massive and that's where all the contractors are. They would pick up these parts and bring them back. The problem was it was taking E6s and E7s about seven to eight days sometimes. These are the guys that are leading our troops out. So now we're sending out like E5s and E6s leading uh, combat missions. So one day my leadership approached me and said, hey, we can't send so-and-so because they're going out on a mission. Can you just get on this helicopter and go and get these parts? And I was, okay, fine. I, I get to leave. Cool. Probably get a good meal. I got back in, I think, like 36 hours, and they were – no one could understand how I had pulled it off. And I was like, I just asked. You know, I, I wanted to get back. I mean, I wanted to stay and have nice chow, but I also wanted to get back because I know you need these parts. So for the last two months of my deployment, I basically lived in the air. I, I, I was flying. And when you get to Bagram, I think Bagram maybe had like five people from the 173rd. So I was on my own. I loved it. It's where I learned how to be very tactful. Um, I would walk into an office with an 04. I don't know who you are. You don't know who I am. I'm just an E4 standing here. Sir, can you sign this? I need to get these parts, and I got to get back. I never once received any pushback. Uh, I don't know if they thought this this kid's just walking in here. Who am I? Um, but I learned how to be very tactful. I learned that 
how to be direct, how to play the game. But at the end of the day, it was to get back to these guys. So I, I spent, and then I started transporting our interpreters. They would go to certain bases and they would need to um, go on leave. And typically the interpreters live like three districts over because you don't want them to be followed. So I spent the last three months of my deployment doing that and I, I loved it. I got to do a lot of things that most E4s do not get to do. So let, let me take you back just for a second. <clears throat> we're, we're speaking with Matt McDonald, uh, who is in Afghanistan at the moment. When you're talking about doing this to get these parts back, do you recall at that time any belief in your mission at the time? And did your mission, I don't want to lead you on, but we always have that mission in the back of our head, whatever that mission might be. Did that change from what the government and the military wanted the mission to be? And it brings it to my mind because you just said you wanted to get these parts back to your men. Was it really just the mission was to be efficient and responsible to the men you're with? I think it's a little bit of both. I, I know that by nature I'm a people pleaser. So if you give me a task, more than likely I'm going to complete the task because I want to do good. Um, I think with what you're saying, right, the, the mission and why we're there and all of that, it changed for me Uh Initially, when we were going out, right, these people are trying to kill me. All that's all I thought. That's all. That's all that went through my head was, "Hey, I Survival. don't want to. I don't want to shoot my weapon. I I do if I need to, but I have no problem being here for nine months and never using this. Like if I don't have to kill someone, I'm not going to shoot someone. But if you pick up a weapon and you shoot at us, we're going to shoot back. It's self preservation, like you said. And I'm here to protect the guys that are with me." And the problem is, and one thing I try to get across to people, you get the questions all the time, what, what was it like? Afghanistan is Afghanistan. Afghanistan is beautiful. It's a beautiful country. They just can't control it. And I don't want to get into the whole politics of it because it's not my place and I don't know everything about it. But at the end of the day, I try to tell people when people ask for an example, I live in Fox Point. It's a very nice area. Let's say one day some country comes in and says, hey, we're going to put a base right outside of your house. And that base is going to get shot at every day. It's going to get rockets and bombs and anything under the sun shot at it. Oh, and on top of it, every day we're going to leave this base and we're going to walk right through your yard. And, oh, you have a garden? Oh, and that's how you, that's how you live. We're going to walk right through your garden every day. We don't care. Um, and every once in a while, we're going to stop and knock your front door down and make right. sure that there's nobody in your house who shouldn't be there. Right. So the life that you have is over. Uh, and, oh, we're going to be here for two decades. Um, at some point, you got to take care of your family. And you're, you may pick up a weapon and you may try to protect what is yours. And... That's what's stuck with, and that's what I tell people. I say, you know, you need to keep in mind these people are just like us, and 99% of that country is us. There's bad people everywhere. We just happen to be there trying to stop them. And whenever I tell people that, they usually look at me and they're like, oh, you know, I never thought about it, or, or that's crazy. It's not that crazy. You want to protect your family, and most of these families are large. There's multiple families living in these, right? So there's 10, 15, 20 people. 
they just want to survive. Well, they want to survive, but they also have to have an income. They have to provide food. They have to provide shelter. I mean, life goes right. on, and not everybody's involved in the war effort. Right. And yeah. income, right? Yes. That's a whole different word to them because yeah. income for you and me is five, six, seven figures in America. Over there, it's literally my crops are what allows my family to turn the generator on right. so that we can have lights in our dirt floor hut right. or collat extraordinary poverty yeah. so and i remember too the military is really good at uh making you look at something different than it really is or dehumanizing the situation so we would get briefings right uh, we're going to go out and we're going to ca- capture or kill objective crystal ball they had all these cool names right to make it sound really covert and really uh awesome it, at the end of the day these names it's like Mike Orban is behind that name, or Matt McDonald. It's it's more often than not a middle human aged, touch, yes. right? Yeah. They cut that out, and when you start looking at the reports on the back end, when you're running the intel division for them or helping with the reports, there's pictures associated with these names. You don't get the names when you're the guy going out to do it. Yeah. You just get the name and uh, last known coordinates. Yeah. That's it. Okay, now I, now I have to stop you because now we go back to the first time you got into this firefight and it was you said, this is really cool right. and you were able to fire your weapon and all that sort of thing. Now you're getting to the end result, what's really happening. This right. is where changes. And so, so now you are not just, oh, this is really cool. Now you're starting to, to really realize what war is about and what human beings are doing to each other. Correct. Yeah. It, it, it's different. You and I don't. Th- I, I would say even a, a overwhelming large percentage of those that I deployed with didn't get that. They didn't even get to see it. Right? So there was only four or five of us in that office, and then there's leadership. Right? Maybe they see it. So I don't expect the average person or the average soldier soldier who deployed with me to even get it. But when you start seeing that, and maybe on the back end when you're out, you start processing it differently. But in the moment, it's you start seeing it. And I, I remember a story that we had where, uh, so we operated a very small base, but then we operated uh, a joint operating base, which was like 10 kilometers farther into this valley. And it was very, that, you would go there for about three weeks at a time. This was very austere, not quite Restrepo, but we would go out there for three weeks. It'd be one platoon of us and one platoon of Afghans. And that's how big it was. Uh, most of the time we didn't shave, you know, you're, you're finally out there like, ah, we can run around in ranger shorts. Uh, we don't have to do all the crazy stuff, but that was where most of the firefighting happened. And when you were out there, um, the engagements just escalated because now you were getting closer to the enemy's territory and they protect it. They protect it substantially more than they protected the bigger base. And um, one time we weren't out there. Uh, one of the other platoons was out there. And uh, I don't know the exact specifications what or details of what happened, but basically a vehicle drove up, a large Jenga truck, which is like a kind of like a U-Haul truck, but their version of it. Um, it, it, it exploded. The Afghans that were at the front were vaporized inside of their Humvees and the walls. But at the same time, there were children playing in and around this this 
this guard tower. And I remember them telling us about how, and, and, you know, the raid cameras, all the cameras that are over the base, like after the fact, the the parents were coming up and they were like scraping the walls because, and don't quote me on this. I am, I, my religion is not Muslim, but I believe that they have to, they have to bury something. So whether that's, uh, Parts, whatever, whatever, whatever's I mean, left. Well, it's it's their religion and their their um, how how they do it. So these families were walking up and they were interacting with with our soldiers and with the, the Afghans that were still there about was my kid in this area right because my kid hasn't come home now and after this the kid would probably run home. That's when you start seeing the the human toll right like th- this is what we're doing and what are what are we here for why are we really here um and i'll get in it later but i remember that image went through my mind when i uh, in 2020 early on i was in vietnam and i got to go to the hanoi hilton and some of the posters or the, the the signs that are there talk about the the mental toll that it took on soldiers with um, being in an environment and not understanding why you were there. And after being there for I don't know eighteen months, you just you look at it so differently, and you're you're battle weary. And I thought to myself, yeah, it's 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 the same thing. Why are why are we doing this? So yeah, it, so so so. It, just to add to this, because it's a common experience, I mean, relative for infantry guys, do you understand at that time anything about emotionally numbing yourself? I mean, you're putting up with this. Now you're not actually seeing warfare. Now you're not just out there having a good time firing your weapon, but now you're seeing things that are more, I would put on a level of unexpected, and that would be the, the, the death of civilians, of children in particular, the mourning of the parents and all this, but you still, okay, so you're on that day, but you've got to go to the next day. You've got to go back to your base. You have to go back to work. You, you're not going to sit there and mourn. You're not going to cry. You're not going to say anything. You've got to somehow shut this stuff down and continue going on, but you don't know you're doing that. Is that fair to say? Yes and no. I I won't get into it, but I think I I have a ability to kind of, detach myself from emotion that's just how i'm built i think it uniquely helped me in the military maybe not as much uh, when stuff would happen it didn't register quite the way that maybe somebody who's more empathetic approaches that um but there were still moments right uh one of my teammates was one of the guys that was attached to one of the platoons we were with uh he was killed on christmas eve and uh small arms fire he was shot and uh, he died out on the battlefield uh, before they could medevac him. And at the time, I was, I think I was like 26 now at this point in Afghanistan. He was, I want to say 22, and I'm sorry if I, I get the ages wrong. That's okay. um, he was from Texas. He had a, a wife back home, and he had, I think, maybe a one- or two-year-old daughter. And I remember when it happened the first thing I thought was it's Christmas Eve and I know it's Christmas in America right now because of the time differences. His family's about to find out about this on Christmas day. And I don't even think we were supposed to be out on patrol that day because I think they have like standing orders. It's 
if, if you kill a soldier on a holiday, it's more propaganda for the enemy. I don't know the logistics behind that, but that's something we've been told. And I remember the next morning having to do the the ceremony where we're all standing at attention, the roll call and that was probably the closest I've ever gotten to breaking down. And I remember everyone around me, officers, everyone on that cop, uh, it, it hit them a certain type of way. And that was one of the worst moments of my life, having to go through that. And survivor's remorse kicked in because I remember thinking to myself, I, the talk that I had with myself out on the, the, the flight line, I'm, I've had a good life. I've done everything. And at the same time, I was thinking to myself, you're going to go home and there's really no one home for you, right? You have your family, your mom and your father and your, your friends, but I didn't have a spouse. I didn't have children. I would have switched places. That's all that was going through my head. Like, why not me? And I know, I, I promise everyone else there was thinking the same thing. Guys that had kids, guys that had families, it's survivor's remorse and you carry that every day. And we weren't close, uh, Mondragon and I, Sergeant Mondragon. Um, we probably talked maybe 20 minutes in the five months that we were in Afghanistan prior to this happening, ran into each other in the chow hall, the gym. Um, I was not as close to him as the guys in his platoon. And I saw what it did to the guys in his platoon, the guy that slept in the same hooch with him. Uh, it, a grown E5 coming back from patrol sobbing. And, like, I, it was one of the worst. It, it was horrible. It was horrible to watch. And when you get back, that's when that stuff starts, you know. Get back. Get back so, home. Okay, so let's, let, let, I'll tell you what, I'm going to ask you something here. First, once again, I want to go back, and, I, sure, and I'm sure. not smiling or laughing at yeah. this, but this is the character where you go back to that original time you fired your weapon, and you thought, this is really cool. Wow, I'm firing this weapon. This is what it's all about. Now, this accumulation of events where you're putting the human touch to it, the emotion, the loss of life, and we're there surviving. It's right. about survival. It's that one great thing, and that's, I want to live. I want these guys with me to live. Right. We want more life. And you're seeing how that stops and what the effect of all of this is. So just over time, this whole thing called war is shifting its, uh, its purpose, its meaning, and it's, uh, the, the result that it's having on you, the effect that it's having on you. So, But before we go back home, before you leave, sure. we're going to ask you your expectations there. But I just want to ask you quickly, while you're in Afghanistan, are you, are you communicating with your family? If, if you notice, we're talking about you at war. But imagine the people at home, the mother, the father, these are the people at home who don't know where you are. They don't know that you haven't been shot on Christmas Day, but they're watching to see if a car is going to pull up in front of their house and who that might be. Can you share that while you were there? Were you communicating with them? So in 12, 13, at that point, we, we had internet. I mean, we had internet to the point where guys could like download music and stream videos. It, it, always, it wasn't always the best quality, but we, so that was where the capabilities had gotten to even where we were. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I was staying in touch with family. Um, at the time I was doing a, I, I did like 250,000 sit-ups and I raised money for the wounded warrior while I was there too. So I had a website and people were donating 
and I was keeping in touch with my family. And I'll never forget the the one time that, like, two days prior, we took a direct mortar round. And luckily, uh, we had, like, six or seven hooches that were lined up in this area. And we, we were all gone. We were out on patrol or whatever. But it directly hit one of the hooches that two guys lived in vaporized everything in there, you know, blew up his personal stuff, computers, clothing, everything. I was the next bay over and it shot shrapnel through my, uh, my, my room. And I remember Skyping with my mom and it was in the middle of the day. And now that this hooch is gone, it's sunlight, right? And my mom was <laughs> saying, what, what is that behind you? And I was, oh, nothing, nothing. I don't worry about it. You know, you don't need to know that had I been sitting here a day ago. But uh, they didn't know what was going on. They didn't need to. I insulated my, especially my mother, uh, from everything that, yeah, intentionally. And I'm pretty sure we all do that to an extent. I'm going to ask you a special favor here, Matt. And uh, I'm going to ask you, because we've shared this much, and you've got a lot to with your foundation when you sure. come home after you return, uh, would you come back for a, a second um, episode, share another short episode? So that way we can have two shorter episodes that, that the audience will be happy to follow. Uh, but I'd like to invite you back for that and uh, get back into how you felt. But just take one minute, unexaggerated, tell us what you were expecting when you were leaving the military. I'm going home now to the States. What were your expectations? I was going to be the stereotypical, he's doing it the right way. I had a plan. I had a business set up with a business partner. I had a spouse that I was going home to, a support structure. We were about to buy a house. I was going to continue education. It was all positive, all good. Correct. And life was going to go on. The war would be behind you. Correct. Great. I tell you, thank you. Uh, we are speaking with former Army uh, infantry paratrooper uh, Matt McDonald. And Matt has agreed to come back next uh, for another second episode. So for today, I just want to thank you, the audience, for joining us. Uh, and uh, we, if you were to visit our website at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org, you will find more resources that are very good for not just for veterans, but for their families uh, in the readjustment from transition to military life. And we also want to make sure that we uh, thank the Charles E. Kubley Foundation, for their support in helping us to provide this show for you today. And it's always very important for those veterans who are struggling to remember that there are actual human voices you can get a hold of and listen to uh, by calling the Veterans Crisis Line. And that line number is 1-800-273-8255 and then press number one. There's also a text line at 838-255-CHAT that you can use, if, especially if you're, you're suffering any kind of issues with depression or suicidal thinking, or just in general looking for information on the transition that you might be uh, experiencing back to civilian life. So for our engineer, Carrie Wheaton, and for our co-host, Bob Bach and Aaron Schroffnagel, I am Mike Orban, and we look forward to speaking with Matt McDonald here in another couple of minutes, but it'll be a different uh, for the audience who will hear it a week from now. So thank you, Matt, and uh, thank you for see you in me. a little bit. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. 
donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us and please tune in again.